When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to another edition of the Penscast Mailbag. I am your host, Garrett Pahana. As always, alongside me is fellow contributing writer over at Pensburg.com and the co-host of the Penscast and the Penscast Mailbag. It is Robbie Noggle. As we enter the week leading up to Memorial Day weekend here in the States, uh, we are getting increasing clarity on the Penguins and their general manager search. And as I texted you uh, before we started recording this episode, I, I said I wouldn't be surprised if if we get a new general manager at some point during the next seven days or so. It looks like Fanaway Sports Group is uh, is finishing up their search and finishing up whatever, whatever processes are left and... Uh, Interviews have taken place. It seems like they have a set list of candidates who they were impressed by. So I guess it's only a matter of time before we find out who the next general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins will be. And when that news is announced, we will bring it to you here on the Pens cast throughout the Skating Penguin Network and over at Pensburg.com. But until then, we have a 16-question mailbag for you this week. Uh, all sorts of great questions from uh, both Brian and Brendan, I do believe, that comprise this week's mailbag. So, Robbie, as always, we'll get started with you. You get question number one this week. As always, question number one comes from Brian, and he asks this. Who has the best mascot in the NHL? And who do you think has the best color scheme in the league as well? Brian votes for Iceberg as the best overall mascot. Brian says, the guy is a legend. And what other mascot can say he was in a movie? Seattle is Brian's vote for the best color combination. So, Robbie, I'll hand it over to you. Do you have any hot takes on league mascots and or color combos throughout the NHL? The bias in me says Iceberg uh, definitely is a top at least three mascot in the NHL. I think the uh, at least between the Pirates and the Penguins, very elite mascot game going on uh, with Pirate Parrot and, and Iceberg. People might not like me for this, but I got to throw Gritty in that mix uh, as well, just because it's it just so much about Gritty is so much just pure Philadelphia. 
And I mean, he's fun. He's maybe the one fun thing that we can point to the Flyers and say, yeah, "This is this is really this this is great." One that's really grown on me has been the Gila monster or lizard uh, in Vegas. Um, it just kind of fits the overall theme of. I mean, Vegas is a desert. Uh, the colors fit in well. Uh, it's one that's really grown on me over the years uh, since Vegas has been in existence. So I throw them in there as well. Uh, UP in Montreal because it's a tie-in to uh, the Expos. He's basically just the Expos' old mascot, um, and they kind of adopted him when the Expos left town, and it's a great homage to uh, the baseball history in that city and being a baseball fan. It's a really nice a really nice touch that the Canadians do, and uh, UP, if you're a, a baseball fan, is uh, someone that, or a mascot that uh, definitely is recognizable, so... Uh, Iceberg is definitely in that conversation. Um, been around forever, a very major part in the John, John Van Dam classic, Sudden Death, uh, which obviously uh, very well known in Pittsburgh, being filmed at the old Mellon Arena. As for colors, uh, Seattle's a, definitely a good one. Seattle's kind of gone with the theme of that Pacific Northwest kind of color scheme. They kind of fit in with the Seahawks. And uh, the Mariners, they kind of kind of a Pittsburgh vibe to it, uh, with the, with the colors, with the colors all matching across teams. A big fan of I, I I might be in the minority on this one, but a big fan of the Dallas Stars, kind of Kelly Green look. Uh, I think it's a really solid color combination with the black and the white and the silver, the green. I just think it works really well. Um, always kind of been a fan of the Panthers, kind of getting a sunshine feel with the red uh, and the white and the uh, and the yellow, kind of bringing those colors together. If Anaheim would just do the right thing and go back to the Mighty Ducks uniforms, they would obviously be a great color combination. And I think you got to give San Jose a, a nod there too. The teal, I'm a big teal fan, and they make teal work uh, in about the best way. So. Yeah, any of those any of those uh, franchises have really good color schemes. Obviously, the, the black and yellow of Pittsburgh is a classic as well, but there's a lot of great color schemes uh, across the league. Question number two comes from Brian. Uh, so we already know of major changes going on in Toronto with uh, the front office change, but uh, say there are major changes uh, made in Toronto with the players. Uh, who do you think it's moved? Uh, and Brian said he'd welcome Alex Nylander's big brother to Pittsburgh with open arms. That, of course, being uh, William Nylander. I am watching from afar the the dysfunction of the Toronto Maple Leafs after getting into the second round for the first time in 19 years. And now, like Robbie alluded to, uh, longtime general manager Kyle Dubas, who had been with the organization since 2014 has been relieved of his duties and as such that indirectly impacts the Pittsburgh Penguins and their quest for a new general manager they uh, asked permission from the Maple Leafs to interview Kyle Dubas and uh, we are still very much in the dark about what Kyle Dubas's plans are moving forward uh, he did say in his end of season press conference before he was let go that it was for him it was either going to be Toronto or nowhere else and we don't know exactly yet where uh, where the penguins are in relation to their efforts to try and see what Kyle Dubas's plan is uh, but looking at going back to the original question of what's happening in Toronto 
it is just fascinating uh, to see a team like that with so much star power finally get over the hump and exercise their demons, get into the second round. You'd think that would be a big, and it was a big monumentous occasion. And then the Florida Panthers come in and sort of throw that entire franchise into disarray. Uh, it is, it, it has been something crazy to watch. Now the Maple Leafs are looking for a new general manager, uh, there are already rumors swirling that both Mitch Marner and uh, Alex Nylander and even uh, Austin Matthews, Matthews, I think it's Matthews and Nylander are the two, uh, the two contracts that are coming up. Not not this year, I believe their contracts expire at the end of next season, and the deadline or not the deadline, the date for when both Matthews and uh, Nylander, I believe, if it's not Nylander, it's Marner. I can't remember who it is. But either way, Austin Matthews' contract expires at the end of next season, and there are already rumors floating around that is Austin Matthews happy in Toronto with this front office dysfunction? You know, will he want to come leave Toronto, come back into the States? Uh, it, it has, after what was jubilation and celebration uh, throughout Toronto after beating the Tampa Bay Lightning and getting into the second round, immediately turns into dysfunction. And as as a as a neutral, and I've certainly made my my passion for the Leafs known on this podcast. I do not care for the Leafs or their incredibly entitled fan base, but uh, to just to watch it all unfold in a matter of hours seemingly has been fascinating and it has left me speechless now Kyle Dubas is out of a job what happens with the rest of that team what happens with Tavares Nylander Marner Matthews all of the big name players who could not even could not get past the first round and in this case could not get past the second round and there's only about a month left until the NHL draft and free agency begins so a lot of decisions are going to have to be made very quickly in Toronto uh it, it is just going to be a whirlwind a uh, month plus until the draft and free agency. It's going to be fascinating to watch as a neutral fan with with no dog in that fight uh, to see how Toronto writes that ship and prevents it from going uh, sinking very deep into the depths of obscurity and perhaps another potential rebuild. So we'll see what we'll have, we'll have to see what happens with Toronto moving forward. Question number three comes from Brian Robbie. What Canadian team do you think will win a Stanley Cup first and break this 30-year drought of no Canadian market winning the Stanley Cup? Also, do you think it's a funny coincidence that no Canadian team has won since Gary Bettman has been league commissioner? If you look at the teams and the talent that's there uh, with those teams and their situations, I think if you have to pick one, put your money on one, I think it has to be the Edmonton Oilers right now. At some point, you'd think they'd figure it out. Again, nothing's guaranteed. But, I mean, just the just having Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl is enough to at least give them a little bit of an edge over the rest of the teams. Now, the rest of the teams, if you look, Vancouver in the middle of a rebuild. Calgary, kind of there. Uh, didn't make the playoffs this year. It'll be interesting to see what they do in this uh, this offseason to get back in the mix. Winnipeg looks like they're going to go through a rebuild. Toronto, absolutely no idea. Everything up in the air uh, in Toronto right now. So we'll have to see where they go. Uh, you probably w- could have said Toronto uh, going into the playoffs, but now it's it, complete mystery. 
Ottawa, I mean, Ottawa's maybe your second best option. Uh, that's a young core that played really well down the stretch and probably going to be fighting for a playoff spot next year. So uh, you never say never there. And Montreal, again, in the middle of a rebuild as well. Uh, so, I mean, your two good options, your one best option, I think, is Edmonton. Uh, your second option is, I mean, right now, maybe Ottawa until we see get some clarity on uh, the Toronto situation. Um, but the other teams are kind of either rebuilding or just mid, uh, like a Calgary or a Winnipeg, but a Winnipeg's going to go through a rebuild. So I, if I had to pick Edmonton, uh, would be my number one. Ottawa uh, would probably be my number two right now, as most likely to break the Canadian Cup drought. None have won under Gary Bettman, which, hey, the odds are always going to be in the American team's favor because they have more of them. Um, and it's not just six or 12 teams anymore and all the power can't concentrate uh, north of the border. So, yeah, I'd say Edmonton won Ottawa a distant uh, second at the moment. And then we'll have to see how everything else shakes out with the remaining uh, Canadian teams. Uh, Brian coming in with question number four. Do you feel bad for Connor McDavid uh, to be widely seen as the best player in hockey for a few years now and not have the postseason success everyone expected? Do you ever think he'll get fed up and want to be moved out of Edmonton? Privately, I wonder if he's had those conversations with either family members or his agent. What, McDavid's, what, 25 now, 26, going to be 26? And, Robbie, you mentioned it in your last question. You have... McDavid and Dreisaitl is, you could argue, is this generation's Crosby and Malkin. So the the ineptitude of the Edmonton Oilers front office to adequately build around McDavid and Dreisaitl is, is incredible and not in a good way. Uh, I mean, McDavid, you saw it even this, this season with the, the records that he was able to shatter this season in terms of point production. And he... On some occasions, he can will his team by himself, but it just goes to show, I think a lot of their success came on the power play, if I'm not mistaken, and not a lot of success came at 5v5. So their postseason opponents did a lot of homework to cancel out both Dreisaitl and McDavid. You need better play at 5v5, and you need better, basically you need better teammates. That that falls on the general managers that have uh, been in charge while McDavid has been in Edmonton. So while he's never going to perhaps publicly say anything to rock the boat, if I'm Connor McDavid, I'm making I'm making millions and millions of dollars being this generation's the, the this generation Sidney Crosby after the the baton was unofficially or officially passed, however you want to uh, view that. But like Brian says, to not have that postseason success, to not even have a Stanley Cup, you're going to be compared to Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin's legacy and Evgeny Malkin and all the centermen, and especially Wayne Gretzky, who came before you, and Mario Lemieux. You're going to be compared to all of these players. And again, Connor McDavid will probably play for another 10 or 15 years, and there's no harm in winning a Stanley Cup at age 35 or 36 if that happens. But the fact that he hasn't done it now and was what is considered his prime uh, these are his prime athletic peak years, and he hasn't had that sustained postseason success. I would be frustrated if I'm McDavid. I don't know what drives McDavid, whether it's the money or the statistics or the championships, maybe a combination of the three. I just don't know him personally. But if I'm there in Edmonton and I'm going through this cycle year after year after year and not getting over the hump, 
not even getting into a Stanley Cup final appearance, that would start to drag on me. And I'd start to be wondering, okay, it's not working here. Well, maybe I'll take, I should think about taking my talent somewhere else. I don't know uh, McDavid's contract status off the top of my head, but I can't imagine this goes on for several more seasons before McDavid finally says enough is enough. If I haven't done it here, then I'm going to go somewhere else and try and get that Stanley cup winning success elsewhere. Question number five. I believe this question comes from Brian. I failed to put his name there when I was uh, constructing the outline last night. Brian wants to know, where do you think the 2016 penguins rank among Stanley cup winning teams? They had speed, with a, with a relentless forechecking ability and a high-powered offense. Robbie, before you answer, I would like to say, too, that 2016 team had the perfect, and I've said this before, they had the perfect combination of veteran leadership, guys who had been there before, and a perfect combination of, of youth, guys that Mike Sullivan brought up from Wilkes-Barre-Scranton. But, Robbie, I'll hand it over to you. Where do you rank the 2016 Penguins Stanley Cup winning team? I think in terms of looking at it, like post lockout uh, Stanley Cup teams, they are, I mean, they're right up there. The 2013 Blackhawks are up there. The 08 Red Wings, just a complete wrecking force. I mean, obviously they beat the Penguins, so um, that kind of stings. But that team was, I mean, the Hall of Famers on that team, uh, just phenom- a phenomenal hockey team. Boy, thinking and just kind of picking off the top of my head here. I mean, it's kind of hard to judge with the bubble. I think, I mean, last year's Colorado team was really good, but I think they're in the top five. I mean, I'm just going by uh, the post lockout Stanley Cups. I could easily see them being a top five um, team, a uh, Stanley Cup winning team. Um, they're better than the, se- the 2017 team, but again, a lot of factors into that. Uh, but no, I'd say they're top five uh, going post uh, lockout. So anything after 2005, um, I'd say that they're that they're in that uh, in that top five conversation. Uh, question number six, again, from Brian, what is the correct way to eat corn on the cob vertical all the way around or horizontal in a row? And how depending on how this question is answered, I will either judge you or uh, judge you as a complete sociopath. Or there, or you are correct. Okay, Brian is back with another food question this week, which I love. I absolutely love this question. And Robbie, I will include you in this discussion. The first thing I have to say is, who in the world eats corn on the cob vertically? I, I have, mean, how possible? I, exactly. I have never, in all of my years of eating corn on the cob, have looked at the cob itself and thought this needs to be standing upright for me to eat it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I am just, I mean, Brian may have opened my eyes to something that I didn't even know existed because I honestly did not know people ate corn on the cob vertically. How that is even, it's all, it almost defies the laws of physics, uh, putting that thing upright and trying to, Exactly, Robbie. How would you even? I'm I'm trying to visualize myself eating a corn cob vertically, and I can't. I mean, the, really, the only real way is to eat it horizontally in a row, as Brian describes. This is 
we we have to investigate this because if there are people out there and if Brian is certainly now he doesn't he doesn't say Brian doesn't say whether he which way he eats his corn on the cob um but honestly I, I would not be surprised if Brian eats his corn on the cob vertically which would be an issue in itself but uh Robbie I, I digress <laughs> I, I have to hand it over to you, Robbie, because uh, I, I'm almost at a loss for words. I, I don't know anybody who eats their corn on the cob vertically. And, and Robbie, it sounds like from 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 some of your comments here, you you do not eat it vertically as well. What I consider to be the, the normal way to eat corn on the cob is horizontal. So, Robbie, put a bow on this corn on the cob discussion before we before we move to question number seven. So my thinking, what he means by vertical is the corn is laying horizontally and you twist it vertically like it's rotating like a rotisserie chicken and you're eating in a circle as you move it around, which, again, you're a sociopath, but it can it can logically happen. Now, you always eat it side to side. You eat it <laughs> left left or right. Like you're reading a book or typing on a typewriter. You don't vertically, no. I don't eat in circles. It's a nice even line all the way across. And again, we're coming into corn cob season or corn in the cob season. Uh, but no, vertically, no. You're a sociopath. You need to be institutionalized. Um, it's horizontal, left or right, every time. It's almost like you, you visualize it. My dad, I always say my dad is a typewriter. The way he eats his corn on the cob, like you said, Robbie, you go you go left or right in a horizontal line, just like that, almost like a typewriter. When you get to the end of the line on the right side, then you rotate it a little bit more. You rotate it just a bit, just to get even more, just to get you know your your next line, just to get that line started. So envision it like if you're eating it vertically, envision it like a typewriter, like Robbie said, go left to right twist it ever so slightly and then just keep going around in that circle but you have to do it horizontally that that's how you do it question oh, oh i just I, I can't get over that corn on the cob question <laughs> number seven comes from brian for the longest time the two goal lead was the scariest lead to have in hockey but this year it seems to be that the scariest lead to lead to have is a three goal lead I don't have any statistics to back this up, but do, do you think this is true? And if you do, then what do you think causes the three-goal lead to evaporate so quickly? I, I just think it's such a quick momentum change. I mean, it depends on when the goal comes. Like, if you go up 4-1, 3-0, whatever, when that first of the three goals come, when's that next goal come? If it comes right after you make it a three-goal lead, then it's basically just a two-goal lead with maybe a minute off the clock. But, I mean, if you extend it and you're looking at a half period or a period, then then it's a different story. But, yeah, it seems like three goal leads anymore. I don't know if it's just a mentality of – because it's not just – the. I mean, obviously, we know the Penguins blew a bunch of leads this year. But it's not something that is just, uh, like, attributable to one team. It seems like this is just something that – is becoming more and more common. A two-goal lead anymore almost feels like it's not even a lead at all sometimes. Obviously, the more goals you're in front, the better you're going to feel. But I don't know if it's just the offense is so good now that three-goal leads can be erased uh, just that much easier or what it is. But, I mean, overall, um, I kind of agree with this. 
a take here that the three goal lead is kind of like a poison pill. Um, you kind of lay back a little bit. I take the foot off a of gas and teams are so good. Now, if you even give them a, a window of opportunity, they're going to fly through it. And next thing you know, that three goal lead to two goal lead. Um, and then you're kind of, maybe the momentum switches, they get another and all of a sudden you're down to a one goal lead and it's a one shot game. So yeah, I definitely uh, agree with that. And I just, maybe it's just, there's so much talent out there now that, um, that no lead is really safe in the NHL. Question number eight. Uh, we got Brian again here. Uh, thoughts on the whole bizarre uh, Kyle Dubas, Brendan Shanahan, and just really the entire Maple Leaf situation. Uh, do you think this news affects uh, Fenway Sports Group and their timeline with their search? Uh, this question's uh, kind of already uh, been answered here today. Uh, Got to think it adds stress to the situation with a team uh, like Toronto entering uh, the same market and needing to fill their front office now. Yeah, like you said, Robbie, this was kind of addressed at the top of the show, but nonetheless, I'll I'll have an abbreviated version here. Yeah, this is, I mentioned the dysfunction of the Maple Leafs, and again, five weeks, five weeks is not a lot of time in any circumstance to do anything. A general manager, I mean, the, the Maple Leafs had been gearing up under Kyle Dubas and his team. It was his team, his people he put in charge his scouting department, his analytics department, all of that. He put all of that in place, and that's what they were gearing towards, the, the draft and free agency. Now, Kyle Dubas is not in charge. Jason Spezza, who had been sort of Kyle Dubas's assistant, had tendered his resignation the same day, I believe, Kyle Dubas was let go. So who's running the scouting department? Who's making those decisions? Five weeks is going to come up very quickly. The Maple Leafs will have to figure out a draft strategy, a free agent strategy. Are they going to re-sign Austin Matthews, William Nylander, and Mitch Marner when those contracts uh, expire? Again, these are all massive questions that have to, on some level, be answered within the next month or so. And that's not a lot of time for uh, an NHL franchise to get its ducks in a row so close to the draft and free agency. It is certainly going to be a crunch time for the Maple Leafs. And like Brian said, it's going to add a lot of stress to this situation at one of the busiest times of the year for the NHL. So I do not envy being a Toronto fan right now. All reports coming out from Pittsburgh's camp are that FSG is taking this general manager search very seriously with a heavy, uh, heavy expected uh, presence in analytics and data driven decisions, which I am all for. Absolutely all for. I love to see some of those reports coming out. So, uh, yeah, this next month or so is going to be crazy on all fronts in the league. And Toronto is just going to be another big team to watch to see how those decisions play out. Question number nine. This is a good question, Robbie, one that I really like and want to get your take on. Question number nine, it comes from Brian. What are your thoughts on this arena situation with the Arizona Coyotes? If the Coyotes do end up moving the team out of Arizona to some of the proposed options, what would you like the best? Brian likes the Salt Lake City idea or moving the Coyotes and perhaps resurrecting the Quebec City Nordiques. Uh, the writing's on the wall at this point after the Tempe uh, stadium was kind of just rejected by voters in uh, in Arizona. I think that um, as much as as much posturing as Batman and the league and the Arizona uh, front office wants to do, 
I think the writing's on the wall that it's just not going to work out uh, in in that market uh, going forward. I don't know where else, what other options they could possibly have for an arena uh, down in Arizona at this point. The second thing is there's going to be, if they'd ever open up the bidding, there would be an untold amount of bids uh, coming in uh, for this franchise because there's plenty of metro areas in the United States uh, and Canada that are hungry for an NHL team that uh, would easily attract uh, a buyer. And, and you look at, obviously, the big name that pops up is Quebec City. And I really think that after reading uh, some stories this week after this all came out, that Quebec City's probably farther down the list than um, a lot of people want to admit. Again, a big nostalgia factor there. Definitely a a hungry fan base there. But overall, I think the big one that comes to mind right away is Houston. And yeah, it kind of might feel weird, not a traditional NHL market, but Houston is the seventh biggest uh, sports market in the United States. Absolutely massive fan base. Um, They've done great with uh, basketball. They've done great with the baseball team there. Obviously, the Astros have won two World Series recently and been to a couple more. Um, Just a... A, a lot of a, a great fan base there. They host Super Bowls. Uh, the Texans are, are rebuilding and look to be have some excitement building around them. Um, just a, a great sports city, and it's a huge. Houston's is an absolutely massive American city, and it would have a natural rival in uh, in Dallas, so that wouldn't be a problem. Another one to watch out, and it wouldn't take any uh, kind of reorganization of realignment of divisions or anything like that. They just stick in the central division. Another one that uh, I believe it was Sean Gentile uh, made a case for, and a very strong case was uh, Salt Lake city with the success of Colorado and Vegas. It would, if you could find a buyer, it would go right there. Uh, No problem. No, or no questions asked um, because I mean, you'd have natural rivals in Vegas and Colorado the Jazz have a good following. There's good uh, minor league baseball in that area. Uh, and they would definitely, I mean, you'd have the Idaho, Montana, uh, Wyoming. You'd pull fans from there. Obviously, Denver, uh, Colorado has a, a strong fan base already. But you, you never know what else you can bring in. And you don't pass up opportunities uh, when they present themselves like that. So um, Kansas City is going to be in. It's going to be mentioned um, obviously, they have an arena, as we know. Port, you might hear Portland if they can get an arena, and that a lot of that would be up in the air. Uh, another one that might sound weird to some people is uh, Atlanta. But hey, Atlanta is a massive market. I know it hasn't worked in the past, but hey, Gary Bettman's not going to say no when the money when the paycheck comes in. So Atlanta, I think they're a little farther off. They would also require some. Uh, realignment in a way with going out east, but uh, I like the Houston and Salt Lake City ideas. Um, Houston, obviously, just a huge money draw, huge market. Um, I believe they have an arena, at least um, they used to have. I don't know if they still have uh, the AHL team down there. So again, again, there is a hockey foundation there, uh, even if it's not a traditional market. And I think number two, sitting there, Salt Lake City. Um, would be dying for one, and hockey's worked in that part of the country, and there's no reason I can't see it working in Salt Lake City. 
Uh, question number 10 uh, from Brian. Uh, going back to music here for Garrett. Uh, how was the Blink-182 concert? Uh, that's one show I wish I could have gotten tickets for. It was, the, the show was everything I thought it was and more. Uh, very rarely does the anticipation outdo or outweigh the, the actual event that whatever you're counting down to, very rarely does the anticipation outdo the event itself. But I was, I had the time of my life. It was fantastic. It was a great 90 minute set. I was there with my sister and my brother-in-law. We went, uh, all three of us, uh, I got, I got us floor seats. So we were up close to the action. I saw a couple of other people there that I knew uh, from school and through just mutual friends and acquaintances that I saw at the concert as well. So it was, it was an absolute blast. They sounded great for, you know, th this being the reunion of the main trio for the, the first time in about a decade. Uh, they absolutely sounded great, perhaps even better than the first time they reunited back in 2009, uh, before neighborhoods, before they dropped the neighborhoods album. So this was uh, everything I wanted it to be. It was fantastic. And now I'm looking forward to the studio album that they're going to drop probably sometime before the end of the year. So uh, that's just another thing to look forward to, another thing to start counting down to. I think the album is finished. I think they just have to perhaps put some more polish on it. And then I wouldn't be surprised if we start getting a couple of uh, lead singles leading up to the release date before the end of the year, whenever that is. But yeah, the concert was fantastic. Had a great time with my sister and brother-in-law. 15 out of 10 would definitely recommend if you haven't seen uh, Blink-182 in concert. Question number 11, we're switching it up now. We're going to Brendan. And Robbie, here is a hypothetical trade involving Connor Hellebuck. What are your thoughts on a conditional 2024 first round pick? The condition is Hellebuck resigns or it becomes a second round pick plus a third round pick for Connor Hellebuck, a 2024 fourth round pick plus Joel Blomquist or another goalie prospect that the Penguins have for trade. Who says no to this deal? So let's examine this, Robbie. It looks like a conditional first round pick in 2024. Hellebuck in a fourth for a conditional 2024 first and Joel Bloomquist, it looks like, or another goalie prospect. So if I got that right, Robbie, what do you make of this hypothetical trade to acquire Winnipeg Jets goaltender Connor Hellebuck? Um, I think it's a fair at least starting place. I don't know if Winnipeg, again, we don't know what Hellebuck's full plan is. Obviously, he said he doesn't want to be a part of a rebuild, which makes makes everyone lean toward he's probably going to leave. Winnipeg because they look like they're heading for a rebuild. Um, but if a guy like Winnipeg or Hellebuck comes available, I'm willing to put about anything on the table um, under the condition that he resigns. Again, not super hype um, about necessarily giving a first for one year Hellebuck. But if he wants to resign for four or five years, then yeah, I'm cool with putting on a a first round a first round pick on on the table there because that's he's that good if you can get away with not giving up uh like a blomquist i i think you try that again though the goaltender from russia they drafted last year again it, information out of the khl can be spotty but he looks like he could be 
a very significant prospect in the Penguin system. So if you think that's uh, going to play out that way, maybe you're okay with moving Blomquist. But, I mean, he just came over to the United States, uh, Joel Blomquist, just got his first taste of North American hockey. If you can avoid maybe giving that up, um, then I'm, I'd am i rather give up another pick, I think, uh, than Blomquist, but that's just me. But I think it's a good starting place. Um, but I'm definitely attaching uh, some conditions to a first-round first pick uh, on the basis that uh, Connor Hellebuck does resign in Pittsburgh because that's too high of a price to pay for a one-year rental. Brendan with question number 12. Uh, if it's uh, Dallas versus Carolina uh, in the Stanley Cup final, should they be forced to wear their original location uniforms in the final, um, a la uh, the Hartford Whalers versus Minnesota North Stars? If you're a fan of nostalgia, and judging by the questions we get in this mailbag quite frequently, I have a feeling a lot of the question askers do enjoy their 90s nostalgia, myself included, even though I was born in 98, so I was born at the tail end of the decade. But if it is Dallas and Carolina, um, it would be fun. It's not going to happen, but it would be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a sort of nod to, to you, the, the organi- both the organization's past between the North Stars and the Whalers, the Whalers being obviously the Hurricanes and the North Stars forming into what are now the Dallas Stars. So, yeah, absolutely. It would be, an, it would be a nice, fun nod, but nah, I, I don't see it happening. Those kinds of things are typically set for your – uh, middle of the season, Western Conference, Eastern Conference matchup, j- just to do like a heritage night or a 90s night. The, the the optics of it, they wouldn't be terrible, but like you'd be tuning in and the NHL wants to attract new fans and you'd be looking at Whalers and North Stars and you'd go to Google it and you'd see the Whalers are in Hartford, Connecticut. The North Stars are in Minnesota and these two teams are Carolina and Dallas. Uh it's a fun idea, absolutely, but one that I don't think would take center stage on something like like the Stanley Cup final. But I love the enthusiasm and the nostalgia for the 90s nonetheless. Question at number 13, Robbie. We're looking at hypothetical free agents here. Brendan wants to know, do you have any potential left-handed defensemen who could be hitting the open market to perhaps fill the void left by Brian Dumoulin? So, Robbie, uh, I'll hand it over to you. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Penguins' left-handed defense situation? Uh, so much of what uh, the answer to these type of questions is, really the game plan is going to be from uh, the new front office regime uh, incoming, uh, whenever that is. So uh, a lot of that, who are they going to talk who Who fits the system that they want? Um, again, we pretty much know that they're going to be analytics-based, uh, um, so you're going to look at guys that and not might necessarily be a big name player, a guy that fits what they want to do, that has the good underlying, then can play hockey. Um, that's kind of how, uh, to use an example, because his name has been in the mix, that's kind of what Carolina has done. They found that talent in places that are not necessarily the, um, the normal route to go. So. Um, if it's a guy like Tolsky, who does he, who does, if you look at what Carolina's done, what, look at some of their targets. If it's a guy like Dubas, look at some of, hey, if it's a guy like Dubas, maybe Morgan Rowley wants to come to Pittsburgh. Um, again, yeah, so, so much of this is going to depend on um, what the plan for the new front office is uh, to reshape this team and how they can uh, find the money to make it work. So, 
Um, there's, I, I don't know enough about Ryan Graves to really say what a fair price would be if the, the Penguins would to make a trade for him. But I think overall, so much of this question depends on uh, the game plan from the new front office that and how they plan on addressing the needs of the team. Uh, question number 14, again from Brendan. Um, what do you think of Max Domi at a hypothetical price of uh, $4 million over three years? And do you think he'd sign a contract like that? Uh, do you think he could be a replacement for Zucker or even a, a third-line center? So this year's free agent, unrestricted free agent crop isn't the most appealing thing out there, which means a player like Domi could be in more demand than usual. I can't imagine teams are going to knock down the door for his services. But looking at what Brendan put out here, so Domi's cap hit for this season, he signed a one-year deal with the Chicago Blackhawks before he was traded to the Dallas Stars. He signed a one-year deal, and his cap hit was just $3 million. So if you're looking at what Brendan suggests, $4 million over the course of three years, perhaps it's a slight overpayment by by a million dollars if you're really being uh if you're really being careful about where you're spreading your salary cap dollars perhaps you look at that as an overpayment i like the three-year term length i think that's i think that's pretty reasonable uh i think domi's only what 27 28 years old so it's not like you're getting a a washed forward or anything like that so one that can contribute offensively throughout the top nine like brendan mentions uh he could i play he could play center or wing so perhaps he could be either your next third line center or a replacement for jason zucker if zucker departs via free agency four million it's tough uh I think it's a bit, just a bit of an overpayment. Maybe, maybe I would go, if I really wanted him, maybe I would go 3.5 over three years, 3.5 million for three seasons. I don't know. I mean, a million dollars doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're the Penguins, when you're the Penguins, you have uh, guys coming, you have guys that you may want to lock up yourselves from your own roster. They have about $20 million in salary cap space to work with. Uh, you're looking at Tristan Jari, Jason Zucker. Uh, so if you bring in a guy like Max Domi, um, you have to really be careful about how you're going to allocate that. And that's why I think the next general manager who comes in here with such an emphasis on data, data, analytics, all of that, I, I would have to imagine a heavy emphasis is going to be placed on the salary cap and how that money is spent. So again, I'm in favor of Max Domi as well as Jordan Stahl. Uh, if you're still listening, Brian, absolutely. Um, but again, I, I don't want to overpay for a guy like Max Domi, especially like I mentioned, this year's free agent crop is not very enticing. Not a lot of A-listers on there. So if teams get into a bidding war over a player like Max Domi, I'd rather I'd rather stay out of that sort of war and overpay for a guy that I'm going to re regret paying two or three years down the line anyway. Question number 15, we switch back to Brian here. Robbie, do you have a dream broadcasting tandem for the Pittsburgh Penguins? Brian is taking um, Paul Bissonette and Colby Armstrong in the booth, as well as Ray Ferraro between the benches. I absolutely love Ray Ferraro as an analyst on ESPN, but Robbie, this is your question. Do you have any certain preference when looking at potential broadcasting tandems for the Pittsburgh Penguins? Yeah, I mean, I think if they are ever going to shake up the broadcasting booth, I'd want to see Josh Getzoff uh, get a shot. Uh, if you listen to his calls absolutely. on the radio, uh, on the radio yeah, he's, yeah, he's fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, he's absolutely fantastic. 
Um, my dream scenario would be like a Gary Thorne. Um, that's going way back to the last time uh, ESPN had the NHL. A uh, great hockey announcer. But if we're sticking more to reality, I think if again, if you're just clearing clearing out all the spots, I go with Josh Getzoff as my um, as my as my play-by-play guy. Um, and I love, I mean, I love Phil Bork beside him. I think Bork is the right um, balance of optimists and pessimists, I guess you could say, or positive and negative. Um, he's definitely a Penguins fan. There's no doubt about that. But he's also, and if you listen to him at all this year, uh, it was a great example. He was not afraid of uh, laying the hammer down on the team when he felt like it needed to be uh, needed to be done. And I think Bork uh, is very knowledgeable of the game. He's not from Pittsburgh originally, but he basically never left Pittsburgh. Um, after uh, coming here, this is his home. Um, this is the franchise where, I mean, he has deep ties. He's friends with Mario. Um, I He's never going to leave. Uh, so I'd, lo- I'd love to see them guys get a bigger audience. As much as, as easy it is to listen to radio these days, you're still going to get uh, a better, um, uh, more eyes on them and more ears on them if they're on TV. And in between the, the benches, as fun as Paul Bissonnette would be between the benches, um, unfortunately, I don't see him giving up the TNT paycheck or the Barstool paycheck uh, to come and do, what, 75 games a year uh, uh, with the Penguins. Uh, so I'm going to go. That's where I put Colby because Colby, I, I mean, Armstrong is fantastic uh, as well. Um, I would have put it if Phil Bork would not want the booth rule for some reason, then I'd be completely fine with putting um, – uh, Army uh, in in the press box uh, with uh, Getzoff. I think he'd do fine uh, in that role. Uh, but if we're going with Getzoff and Bork as your main TV crew, and then I'm going with uh, Colby in between the benches. And if Colby has national business to attend to, uh, I'm sure they can find somebody uh, to squeak in there in between the benches that um, would do, do just good a job. But yeah, any combination of those three, I think, would be um, a home run for the Penguins um, broadcasting uh, games in Pittsburgh. Uh, and then last but not least, we have Brendan wrapping up, wrapping us up with question number 16. Uh, when is the cutoff uh, for questions to be submitted for the weekly uh, mailbag? A good question that I don't think has been asked before. So uh, here's how I typically do things. So we, we're recording right now. In the evening of Monday, May 22nd, uh, typically what I will do is uh, I'll send the mailbag tweet out on Sunday afternoon. So the day before we record, that'll go out sometime in the early afternoon. And uh, basically you have between the time the tweet goes out, for instance, from 1230 p.m. Eastern on uh, on that, that would be that Sunday until I could, because I work, I work on the weekends. I work Saturdays and Sundays from three 30 to 11 30 at night. So by the time I'm done working with my regular job, uh, the one of the last things I'll do before I uh, go to bed is put the outline together for the next day's mailbag. So you have about, you have almost give or take a 12, 12 hour time span 
on that Sunday, the day before we record, to get the questions in. And then the, the, that, that cutoff is probably around midnight Eastern, uh, leading into that Monday, 1230, maybe. Sometimes I'll be up late Sunday nights into Monday because I'm off Monday. So if you're submitting a question for the mailbag late, late Sunday night, odds are I'll probably see it. But I would say the cutoff is probably no later. Don't don't be submitting questions in last week's thread, like no later than like 1 a.m. into that Monday morning, the day that we we end up recording the podcast. So, like I said, every Sunday afternoon, I'll send out the tweet, and then by Sunday night into early early Monday morning is when I put the outline together. So, that's about what 12 ish hours, 12 13 hours to to get your questions in. So uh, yeah, that, that's that's basically some little behind the scenes, if you will, of how I put the outline together for the Pencast mailbag and and that sort of thing. So if you're interested for future reference, that's how much time you have until uh, I put the kibosh on the the tweets and I put them in an I put them in an and then Robbie and I sit here and talk about which ways you, you you're supposed to eat corn like a normal person. That that is the that is the progression of how things work here at the Skating Penguin Network. But uh, like I mentioned at the top of the show, if I didn't mention it at the top of the show, I definitely mentioned it to Robbie before we started recording. I would not be surprised as we sit here on the eve of May 22nd if the Penguins do not have a new general manager within the next seven days. And as such, uh, Robbie and I will be here to break that breaking news down if and when it happens Obviously, our schedules will have to uh, our schedules will have to make sure we are av- available to do that. But uh, I don't see anything standing in our way of hitting the microphone button, hitting the record button, and uh, giving you some of our thoughts if and when the Penguins name their new general manager when that happens in the not so distant future. So with that, uh, for Robbie Noggle, I have been Garrett Bahana. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Penscast Mailbag, and we will talk to all of you again this time next week. 